If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Haggai. Haggai. Yes, I know this is everyone's favorite book of the Bible. You probably know exactly where it is. Um, uh, it, it's easy to miss. In, in the Bible I use for my personal Bible reading, it's literally one page. It's like front and back. And so it's easy to miss. I could tear that page out and just carry the book of Haggai with me as like a scrap of paper. It's a short little book, just two chapters, but it has a powerful message that we're going to see. Uh, we're, we're, I was telling our, we do a little prayer rally before the service uh, every Sunday, and I was telling the, the, the servant leaders there at that prayer rally and just gathering, just kind of uh, just giving the morning to the Lord that I planned last summer thinking through the, what God wanted to speak to his church through his word. And the first book I settled on was the book of Haggai, believe it or not. Uh, and I knew this was a word that God had for us. I didn't know exactly when, but the time is now. Um, and so uh, if you do need a Bible, Robert has some uh, copies in the back. Uh, if you wanted to slip your hand up, we'd be happy to get one to you. Or you can go on your Bible app. Uh, and we're using the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. Uh, if you, uh, you want to pick that version on your digital platform so you can follow along. Uh, let's, we're, we're, I'm just going to read a few verses from Haggai chapter 1. They won't be on the screen. Uh, just listen to kind of just kind of be refreshed by God's word, and then we're going to get in uh, to, to the message. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, This people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says, think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, you have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house and I will be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask as we spend a few weeks in this book of Haggai that you would speak through your word to your people. You have spoken as you spoke so many years ago, 2,500 years ago with, uh, through the prophet Haggai as, as he spoke to your people who had lost uh, the vision of rebuilding the temple that you had called them to. And for years they had neglected what, what God, you were telling them to do, and you raised up a prophet, and you, in your grace and your love, you spoke to them and called them to a better way. May you speak to us through Haggai as we are humble enough to just open up and say, God, we want to learn. And uh, so, Lord, I just pray you would open the word up to us and then open us up to what you want to say to us. If there's anything I've prepared to say uh, in all of the study and the notes and everything I've prepared, Lord, that, that doesn't need to be said, that you would edit me out and you would just help me to say everything I need to say, even if I hadn't thought to say it until uh, this moment, that you would speak to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Many have described the current state of our culture and our society as post-Christian. Um, because, and, and the reason for that is before now, Christian faith had a major influence on our society. Um, in, in past times, the church was sort of like the center of the community. Um, and, the, and people, even if they didn't live according to it, people respected the Bible's teaching. And, and the, the, the chapel bell would mark the time in a, in a, in a small town, and, and the Christian ministers, would their job was really to call on people to believe and learn what they already knew uh, to be true, but to just simply live it out and really dive in to what everyone pretty much agreed upon. Not everyone, but most people sort of had this framework based on the Christian story. This doesn't mean it was a utopia. Um, There's lots of instances of sin and brokenness in the midst of that. But it did mean that the church sort of had a clear understanding of its role. And that was that it was an important and central part of society. And Christians, committed Christians, were a central and important part of society. Well, in 2019, we live in a very different moment. Um, committed Christians and Bible-teaching churches uh, find themselves, find ourselves as increasingly a minority population. And I don't think statistically and just looking at the trajectory, I don't think there's any turning this around in a, a massive way quickly. I think that for the foreseeable future, as the church and as Christians, we will be a minority that people who believe what the Bible teaches and believe, what, that, that believe it and take it seriously, that they will be and we will be a minority population, that most people in society will disagree. They may disagree kindly. They may disagree sort of flippantly and sort of like, you know, just not worry about it, or they may be angry about it, but I think many will disagree with what we believe. And the question is, I think, not whether we'll be a minority, but what kind of minority will we be as Christians and as the church? Um, will we get angry and defensive and try to fight back? Will we get scared and reactive and withdraw? Will we get complacent and half-hearted and just sort of give in to the tides and the, the, the winds of, of cultural uh, beliefs and, and things that are happening? I don't think God wants us to respond in any of those ways. I don't think God wants us to get angry. I don't think he wants us to get scared. I don't think he wants us to just give up or give in or get complacent. He has something better for us. And I think that something better is found, among other places, in the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. This little-known, often-neglected, tiny little book is filled with a powerful message for us as Christians in 2019, as a church in South Florida, and as a new church here, just sort of getting our feet under us, like a little calf that's just been born, wobbling along, trying to figure out what's going on. Haggai spoke into a situation that was really similar to our situation. Uh, this, this, the people of God had lost ground. They'd lost their land. They'd lost their kingdom. They'd been exiled for decades from their land. The temple had been destroyed. They were struggling, and they'd lost their nerve. They, and, and in the midst of this, they not only 
had they lost their nerve, they'd lost sight of what God had called them to do and who God had called them to be. And God in his love, sometimes we think of the prophets as sort of like doom and gloom, turn or burn, sort of like, you know, these, these, these sort of like downcast, like, oh, angry, calling people to, you know, saying there's judgment on the horizon. Well, that's one way to look at it, but you can also look at it another way, that God loved them enough to warn them and to call them to a better way. It's like you, and your, your kid runs out in the street. You don't call them back firmly because of a, a, a heart of hatred or anger. You call them back firmly because you love them and you don't want them to get hit by the FedEx truck that always drives too fast down the street. Haggai's call to them was the same call that we need to hear today. And that is, it, it wasn't the time to get angry wasn't the time to be afraid. It wasn't the time to give up, go home, and just f- focus on you. It was time, and it is time to build. So let's just, before we get into the book of Haggai, what I want to do is I want to give a sort of big picture overview of where Haggai stands in the, in the Bible's story. Sometimes we look at the Bible, and you know, if you know anything about the Bible, and I know that some of you have no idea about the Bible. It's like you know it's a book. You may agree with it. You may disagree with it. You may not know anything about it. You may be skeptical about it. And others, you may know a lot about the Bible. But I think most of us are somewhere in the middle. And that is we may want to know about the Bible, but the Bible can be very intimidating to us. And you may know, if you know anything about the Bible, that there's like two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, the Old Testament... That freaks people out because it's, it's got lots of genealogies and it's got lots of weird names and it's got lots of strange things that are happening and, and it can be very confusing. And so what I want to do now is just sort of debunk the myth that the Bible's storyline is hard to understand. It is long and complex in some ways, but in other ways it is um, it's pretty straightforward. On s- Thursday mornings, we've been studying the Bible from Genesis to Revelation with the men, and we finished up uh, a-, a couple of months ago, and we were building out a storyline of the Bible starting with the beginning. And what I want to do is share with you some of that storyline to find out where Haggai fits into the story, because you can't understand what his message means uh, for you if you don't understand what his message meant Uh, for the people he was speaking to. So the story of the Bible up to Haggai. Okay, so we're going to just rapid fire through these, okay? If you get, um, you know, sort of glazed over at this stuff, like all this stuff, you know, just hang in with me and just know that this is worth just just hang in and know that it's going to help you to understand the the Bible in general and Haggai in particular, and it's going to pay off. It's going to pay off. Uh, when you get through this. So if you're not into this stuff, hang in. If you are, you know, dig in. Okay, so the first thing, the Lord, Yahweh, creates the heavens and the earth. That's the very beginning of the Bible, chapters 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. That's the foundational truth of all of the Bible's story is that God created. There was a God who was self-existent and and didn't need anything, but out of his free love, he desired to create this world, and he did that in Genesis 1 and 2. Then after that, humanity rebels against God and falls into sin. 
separating God and humanity. It's Genesis 3. So you know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and the, the, the fruit and they eat the fruit and the, God sends them away from the garden and, and sin and death enter into the human story. But what you may not have heard is, and may not realize is that as soon as God saw the people that he created fall into sin, he immediately starts his plan of rescue and redemption. Before he pronounces the, even the full curse of the judgment and, and separation that come because of human sin, he promises in Genesis 3.15 that the head of the serpent would be crushed. And so this, this, the Lord immediately starts his plan of redemption. As soon as people sin, God goes about fixing what had been broken. Uh, the Lord sends the flood and saves humanity through Noah. The Lord disperses humanity after the Tower of Babel. The Lord calls Abram and promises to make him a great nation. This is all the very beginning. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell this massive scope of the storyline of the world. And then God calls this one man, Abram, and promises to make him a great nation. And then, then he does just that, and the people become a great nation, but they get sent into slavery in Egypt and multiply. So there are millions of people now from this one man, Abram, 400 years later, has, this family has multiplied into hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the land of Egypt. And God, the Lord, delivers his people from slavery in Egypt, the Exodus, through Moses. And that was about 1446 B.C. So this is about 1,500 years before Jesus. The Lord then, through Moses, gives instructions to his people before entering the land, Deuteronomy. He gives his people the promised land of Canaan. The Lord appoints a series of judges um, to... to, to uh, rule over the people before they had a king. And then we see about 400 years after they enter the land, the people ask for a king, and the Lord appoints Saul. And Saul reigns over Israel for about 40 years. And this is in the, the book of 1 Samuel. Saul was not a good king. He, he, he lost sight of God's purposes, and he disobeyed the Lord. And so the Lord anointed a new king named David. The Lord appoints David, who reigns over Israel for 40 years. Now, David's heart was, um, though he was sinful, was to serve the Lord. And what David wanted to do is David wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build God a temple. Because David had this massive palace. And he said, why should I be living in a beautiful palace and God still living in the tabernacle? It's literally a tent. And he goes and he says, I'm going to build the Lord a house. And the Lord comes to David through the prophet Nathan and says, you think you're going to build me a house? No, no, no. You don't understand how this works. You don't build for me. I build for you. I, 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 I am the one who's going to make things happen. You, you can't, you're not the hero of this story. I'm going to give you a son who will sit on a throne eternally. And that son we see as the storyline moves down ultimately was Jesus Christ. David's son was uh, his son in the flesh was Solomon, and the Lord appoints Solomon to reign over Israel, and he reigns for 40 years. So this is when the kingdom of Israel was at its height. The, the, Solomon did build this majestic temple, and the, the, the kingdom was bigger and more influential and more prosperous than ever before. But then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, he, he, he saw things fall apart. See, Solomon got drunk on the, not literally, but maybe literally, but he got drunk on power and pleasure and all that he had, and he turned away from the Lord at the end of his life. 
And so the Lord takes 10 of the 12 Israelite tribes from under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, due to Solomon's disobedience. The Lord, then in the midst of this, in the midst of what's called the divided kingdom, there was two, 10 tribes in the north called Israel and two tribes in the south called Judah. And this is called the divided kingdom and both had their own sets of kings. And the, the kingdom in the north was almost completely uh, uh, falling away from the Lord. None of the kings followed the Lord. Uh, the people were, were worshiping Baal along with the, the Lord, and it was just a huge mess. And so what God does is he raises up prophets to speak to the, to the people. The first one was Jonah in about 750 BC, so uh, about 200 years after David. And then the Lord disciplines the 10 northern tribes known as Israel due to their disobedience. They're defeated and captured by Assyria, and they never, they never uh, become a kingdom again. And, and, and they are separated from, from the land, and they are dispersed through the nations. And, and that's uh, just a few years after that in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom did better. Judah did better. They had good kings along the way, some good and some bad. They had good kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and, and Josiah. But eventually, due to their disobedience, the Lord disciplines them as well, about 150 years after the northern kingdom. Whereas the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. And they are subjected to a series of three deportations in 605, 587, and 586. So a course of 20 years. Just imagine the course of 20 years. All of the most educated, all of the most influential, all of the wealthiest people all of the people who, who knew how to make things happen in society are, are systematically taken out of the land and moved hundreds of miles away to the land of Babylon. And they're in exile. They're in Babylon. They're, they're lost. They're homeless. And, and at the end of these series of deportations in 586, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroys Solomon's great temple. It had stood for hundreds of years as a symbol of God's presence in Israel, and it's destroyed. Then God fulfills his promises, and after 70 years, he brings his people back from exile, starting with the reign of King Cyrus, the Persian king who came in defeated Babylon. And this is where we get to our story. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah that there would be a 70-year exile and then the people would return, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering. And so we see uh, Cyrus begins and we see as prophesied in Isaiah and now comes to fulfillment, this is in the book of Ezra, that Cyrus, the Persian king, institutes a policy that allows the people to rebuild the temple. And actually, in, in the late 1800s, this was confirmed historically. Uh, they were doing an archaeological dig in historic Babylon, and they found this big stone cylinder. 
And it had all these little etchings on it. It was Persian. It was, it was written in an ancient language, and it's called the Cylinder of Cyrus. And what it says, it doesn't name Israel specifically, but it says that this was Cyrus's policy. In order to keep peace in his massive kingdom, he sort of let people do what they wanted. He even helped them rebuild their religious, organ, you know, religious buildings and these sorts of things. And Israel is the beneficiary of this policy. And then the, the next thing that happens, the people uh, lay the foundation um, of the temple. And when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin... Um, uh, I think, oh, I didn't put another slide in. That's okay. In Ezra 3.10, they rebuild the temple. They start to build the foundation of the temple. And when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, now the story continues, um, the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them, to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. So here's what's happening. For almost 20 years, the temple has been started to be rebuilt. For almost 20 years, it's been in a state of half construction. It's this, this unfinished construction site. I remember growing up, there was this, this hotel at the corner of, of uh, one of the intersections of the on-ramps to the freeway in my hometown. And it, it was built, and then it, was, it just sat there, unfinished. And then another company would come in and buy the property, and they started it, and they would start the construction, and they ran, ran out of money. It was like this this thing, and it, it was like years, this thing just sat there, half done, until finally someone came in and rebuilt it. There's this house, I, I wasn't here, but my wife growing up here in Lighthouse Point, there was this house that we drive by every day on the water. It was this, this mansion, and it sat cinder blocks for years, unfinished. People live in the shadow of this unfinished temple. We see in Ezra 4.24. Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. So this is almost 20 years. Almost 20 years since the people had been commissioned and given all that they needed to build the temple by King Cyrus. He was going to pay for it. And they, 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 all they had to do was to continue building but they ran into distraction, they ran into uh, discouragement, they ran into people who were trying to stop them, and they gave up. They lost focus, they lost their passion, they lost vision of what God had called them to do, and they're like, well, let's just focus on our families. Let's just focus on our own houses. Nobody's going to get upset if we just if we build our own little houses and focus on the, 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 what, what we're doing just ourselves. That No one's going to care if we're not doing something big for the Lord. And this is what had happened. And this is how we got to the book of Haggai, who's called to call them back to build. It's time to build. And as we look into the cultural story of uh, the church in America and the Western world, um, there's... I can't give you a timeline like a, the biblical timeline, but I can give you a few of the pieces of the factors in our culture. How did we get where we are? And this is not comprehensive, and it's just a, a little bit of a smattering of a few pieces of the puzzle. And in and of themselves, 
uh, some of these things, many of these things are not bad. But when they're made ultimate, they begin to deteriorate the life of a society and the life of a culture, and they begin to diminish the influence of the church. So the first thing, well, I have all five of them. We'll go one by one. Individualism. The, the, the message of individualism is that it's time for me. And, and we've, we've been taught to believe that we are masters of our own destiny and that we have the r- right to define for ourselves what our life will be, that we're allowed to pursue our dream. And when you wish upon a star, it doesn't matter who you are, anything your heart desires will be given to you. It's the Disneyfication of, of and I, don't get me wrong, I watch all the Disney movies, and, but Disney has discipled us to believe that we can pursue whatever we want to do and it's all about us. As a church planter, you know, um, one of our sponsored churches gives me a, a room that I use as a study uh, and, and has my pastor's library in there and all that. And I work there um, maybe one day a week, but, but I also like to be out and about. So I have like three different places, different coffee shops and different places I go to so that I can work, you know, mobile office, get the laptop out, take a few of my books with me, work on administration or, or sermon prep or whatever the case may be. And one of, one of my regular spots is Starbucks at Hillsborough and Federal in Deerfield. And I go there, and I was there a lot this week, and I was writing this sermon, literally writing the notes for this sermon, and I, I, I see all around me this, the baristas, and I used to work at Starbucks when I was in seminary, and so all the baristas, um, they're, they're, they're all wearing, you know, Starbucks-approved clothing, some have dark shirts on, but a bunch of them are wearing this T-shirt. And on the back of this T-shirt, there's this quote from Lady Gaga. And it says, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. And, and it's this, this idea that, that it's the same thing the serpent told our first ancestors in the garden, and that is you can be like God, that it's the elevation of the individual self to a place of ultimate, that you are, you are the sovereign of yourself. It's time, this is the message of individualism, it's time for me. Um, then, then there's also the message of materialism. Materialism is the belief that the only real things are things we can see. We talked about this last week, that the, 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 the most real things are things you can touch, you can put your hands on, you can empirically verify. And, and the, we, materialism teaches us that, re, that anything that isn't visible and isn't quantifiable, it might be nice, it might make you feel better, but it's like a kid believing in Santa Claus. It's cute, it's nice, it's kind of, it's not really hurting anything, but we all know it's not true. This is the message of materialism, that only things you can see are real and everything else is just make-believe. It's like getting on Mr. Rogers' trolley and going to the land of make-believe. And the message of the materialism, materialist is it's time for now. This is all we have, YOLO, you only live once. Why? Because when you die, there's nothing else. It's only now. The third message of our culture is the message of consumerism. That is, that we're defined by what we consume. We're defined, you know, by, by the types of brands that we have. You know, that, that if, if our car has a certain insignia on it, like a little funky look, looking tea, 
you know, and we can plug it in. You know, that's a Tesla. That's like a status symbol. At least I think it is. You know, I think it's, I would love to have a Tesla because that's a brand I would like to consume. Or if it's like a little apple on the back of your phone with a little bite out of it. Or it's like two interlocking G's on your purse or like an LV on your purse or whatever. All of these things are symbols of the consumerist mentality. Now, none of these things necessarily are bad in of themselves, but the message of consumerism is that we are what we buy. That what we consume is what defines us. We consume food and clothing and gas and electricity and books and movies and TV shows and we consume, we consume, we consume and it's easier than ever to consume because there's just so much and it's so cheap by the standards of history. Just to buy food used to be like, the no, just to live and not die used to be the, 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 what most people spent their time and money on. There was, discretionary income was not a thing because it's like you had to hunt you know, and you had to go kill the elephant or whatever and eat it, you know, and that was like, that was life. But now it's so easy and you can get a dozen eggs at Aldi for 69 cents. What do you do with all the rest of your money? You buy other stuff. This is the message of consumerism. It's time to buy. Fourth message is the message of politicalism. Uh, as people have started to lose touch with the meaning in their lives, they've started to latch onto political ideas and beliefs as a form of identity. Now, I'm not saying politics are not important. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that for too many people, politics has taken the status of religious belief because they have nothing bigger. Uh, for almost 30 years, my dad owned his own uh, tire and auto repair shop, and he just recently sold his business and retired, and some of you met him. They were here a couple weeks ago, and for about the first 10 years of that time, he had a partner, and he actually was a minority partner in this, uh, with this family who owned like five or six stores around the San Jose, California area, which is where I grew up. And, um, and so uh, the, he wasn't able uh, to take a lot of vacation during that, that season of life. Uh, there, there wasn't another person who could do the job that he did at the store, except for one guy. And this one guy's name was uh, George Kelly. And George Kelly was a retired per guy who had been a manager of one of the stores that this family owned. And um, Kelly, everyone called him Kelly. And Kelly would cover the store for my dad when we went on vacation. And he was kind of old and gruff. And uh, I remember Kelly came in the shop one day and we're there at the front counter. He goes, well, Jeff, I think that Texas oil man of yours is going to be winning this election. And I was like, okay. I was like, and, and he's talking about George W. Bush, the, the 2000 election versus Al Gore. And I, he was talking about it, and he's talking, and uh, he left. And I was like, Dad, what was that about? He said, Danny, there's two things you, know about, you need to know about Kelly. Kelly is a Raiders fan, underline exclamation point. And Kelly is a Democrat, underline, underline exclamation point. That, like, there's two, the two most important things for him in many ways were his sports team and his political party. And I think that that has become true of many people in our culture, where politics take on not just an important role, but a transcendent role. 
It's like every election, you notice that it's like it's always apocalyptic terms. Like there's nothing, there's no election that matters as much as 2016. It was make or break for society, except now that that's what they're saying about 2020. Every election is like the most, it's like everything hangs in the balance. And some, some people are like, everything depends on Donald Trump being reelected. And then the other people are like, everything depends upon Donald Trump being defeated. Now, I'm not saying that politics aren't important, but our culture has made them ultimate because they have nothing bigger to believe in. And the message of politicalism is it's time to vote. This is how we make meaning, and this is what matters in our lives. I'm going from least offensive to most offensive, right? So I probably offended a lot of you at number four. Now, number five, everyone's going to be mad at me, and that's okay. Um, number five, familyism. Our culture has devalued the family in many ways. We see, like, you know, the divorce and all the stuff that's just, and all, all the things that have over the years devalued the, the family in our culture. And some have reacted to that by making the family ultimate. And, and I think both are errors. Um, Sunday used to be a special day in our culture. People would go to church on Sunday. Or if they didn't go to church, at least they sort of felt guilty about it. Or thought, you know, I probably should. But now, no, almost, no, not very many people think that way. Now, on a day like today, like, it's not very nice out. It's like thunderstorming and raining and, you know, it's, but, but I was, there was a day like earlier this year and it was like, it was one of those South Florida days where you actually like living in South Florida because it's like 60 degrees out and it's not a cloud in the sky. And I'm just like, I'm sitting, I, sometimes I sneak outside behind the building and I just spend time, well, I do in the spring and the winter, not now, to spend time with Jesus before the this, this service and to just prepare to preach. And I'm saying, I'm like, Lord, you're making it really hard to plant a church because I know if I wasn't a Christian, why in the world would I go sit in a dark room and sing songs and listen to a guy talk for 45 minutes? And, and I think in many ways, we are fighting against what I call the killer bees. Ball games, birthdays, brunches, and boats. This is what people find their meaning. This is where people are finding their identity. It's like we need to invest in our family and we need to, you know, if, they, if our kids have a baseball game or a soccer game, then that's what's most important. Or if there's a birthday party, then that's what we got to do. Or, you know what, we're going to go to brunch at 11. We don't have time to go to church. Or, you know, we're, that's, we don't have, you know, I work hard all week. And so Sunday's my day to get out on the boat or whatever the case may be. We have made family in and of itself the highest ideal in some cases. We're competing against a culture that sees church as irrelevant at best and dangerous at worst. And the message of familyism is it's time for us. It's time for us. We had a long week. Things are crazy. It's time for us. So that's how Haggai got to where he God, and that's sort of how we got to where we got. Here's the message Haggai wanted them to hear. The message that Haggai wanted them to hear. As the people walked every day by the Temple Mount with an unfinished foundation shadowing over them, 
They saw just futility. They saw hopelessness. One writer says the construction site was neglected for nearly two decades due to the problems of sheer survival in a ruined city surrounded by hostile foreigners and plagued by drought and crop failure. It's not like things weren't hard. It's not like they were just being lazy. There were people who hated them. There was real problems happening in their life and in, in their society. And there were things pressing upon them. The urgent needs of life were tyrannizing them. Stephen Covey years ago wrote a book you've probably heard of, a um, famous book on productivity called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, and in that book, he makes the point, among other things, that effective people, effective leaders, they prioritize what's important and not simply what is urgent. Because if we prioritize only what is urgent, we will neglect usually the most important things are not vying for our attention. We have to be intentional to prioritize them. And the people, they had, they had fallen into the trap we so often do. They'd lost their priorities. They got stuck. They didn't, they, they just, they'd fallen into a rhythm and a pattern that was deteriorating their spiritual life rather than filling God's call to go up the mountain and build that temple. And they couldn't get themselves out of the rut. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you are in a rut and you can't get out. And in that moment, usually what happens is someone you love or something happens. Someone you love comes alongside you or something happens that jars you enough to move you up out of the rut. And this is what the people needed. And God loved them enough to do just that. And so he sent Haggai to them, to this small group of people, this little remnant, and says and said to them, come, build the temple. A remnant is a small remainder of a large group that has survived after an elimination judgment or catastrophe. This is just a small group of people who had barely made it through. And they'd lost their vision. Last week we talked about losing your first love, and they'd lost their first love. But God loved them enough to call them to a better way. And in His grace, He did. And He called Haggai to say, it's time. It's time. Pursue God's way, because God is in control, and God will save you. This is, this is the message, I think, overall of Haggai, and that the hero of the story is not Haggai the prophet, it's not Zerubbabel the governor, it's not Joshua the high priest, it's not the remnant of the people. The hero is the person who is named 14 times in just 38 verses, in just two chapters, the Lord of armies. Some translation say the Lord of hosts. The next slide has the Hebrew on it. Um, oh, it doesn't? There we go. Uh, the, the Hebrew is Yahweh Sabaoth. And you got the Hebrew there just so you can look at it and think, oh, that's cool. Like, you actually read it this way in case you didn't know that. It goes right to left. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh, 
the Lord, the way our English Bibles translate it, when, it, when you see the word Lord, all capital, little O-R-D, but it's all capitalized, that's the Hebrew name Yahweh. That is the covenant God of Israel. This is the God who created the world, who exists within himself, his life in and of himself, who doesn't need anything other than himself, who by his own free love created the world, who spoke the world into existence, who called Noah and saved him from the flood, who called Abram and told him to move to the land of Canaan, who saved his people when they were enslaved out of the land of Egypt, the triune God, the Father who sent the Son to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead so that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, and who sent his Holy Spirit to his church, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the God who is the hero of Haggai, Yahweh the Lord. But it's not just Yahweh the Lord, it's Yahweh Sabaoth, Sabaoth is of hosts or of armies. And what this is implying is the military power, the military supremacy of the Lord, that the Lord's armies are more powerful. Now, the reason this is significant is because this was spoken in the time of the most powerful kingdom that had ever been at that, up to that point in history. The Persian army was undefeated and it was unbeaten and could not be beaten. For 200 years, they rolled through the known world and took everything they wanted until Alexander the Great came and was, had a little bit stronger army. But you know what happened? Persia finally was defeated by Greece and Alexander the Great. But then you know what happened to Greece? Is they fractured, fell apart, and Rome arose. But you know what happened to Rome? Rome eventually fell apart. And you know what we talk about? If I mention Alexander the Great, if you know anything about him, what you say is, well, that's ancient history. Literally, ancient history. If you know anything about him, it's a historical curiosity or because you listen to hardcore history by you know, the, the, a podcast or something. It has no effect on your life whatsoever. But the Lord of hosts is alive and well. Every earthly kingdom, no matter the extent of its power, at a given moment in time, will fall apart, will fade, will be defeated. But what Haggai is saying is the Lord of hosts, his purposes will never be defeated. His power will never fade. And his calling to them was to build the temple. It's time. And the, mag the message Haggai would want us to hear in light of this. And we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the book of Haggai, in the, the, these two chapters. For the rest of the month of June, we're going to be digging into this. And as we find ourselves increasingly marginalized, as we hold the biblical teaching, biblical ethics, at the mercy of cultural power that doesn't believe what we believe, we're going to be tempted by individualism. We're going to be tempted to think, you know, it's time for me. I just, I just need some time for me. You're going to be tempted by the message of materialism to believe that this is all there is and all you can see is what's real and YOLO, you only live once and let's just, uh, is this really all true? You're going to be tempted by consumerism 
and to think that buying more stuff and buying more experiences will give you the good life that you're looking for. You're going to be tempted with politicalism and thinking that, it, that everything rests on this next election. You're going to be tempted with familyism and thinking those killer bees look pretty good right now. And our family, we just need to, we just need to zoom in in our family. But what Haggai is saying is there is something bigger than all of those for you and for us. The Old Testament saints were called to build the physical structure of the temple. We're called to build the spiritual structure of the temple. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone to Christ, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The message of Haggai basically reiterates the core values of our church, that life like God intended is found in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, in authentic community with one another as the family of God, and in the joyful mission to make disciples in the world. And the most important, those are the most important things you will ever do. And those are the things that will last forever. And as we find ourselves in the moment we're in, as we find our church in the season that it's in, we're nine months old, we're just a baby. You know, if our, if our church were a baby, unless it was super advanced, it wouldn't even be walking yet. We're still crawling. And it's going to be easy to lose heart. And the, the grind of setup and teardown and the, the, the rhythm of the weeks. And some weeks, you know, we, if, you know like that things may not work the way they're supposed to. And we don't have all the bells and the whistles. And where are the people? Where, what, what, do people care? What's going on? We're going to be tempted to lose heart. But let's not forget that the most important thing we could ever invest in is building the spiritual house of God. In my early 20s, I was a Christian, wasn't really like rebellious, but I was sort of just stuck. I was in college, but I, I, was, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I didn't have a major. I was taking like three classes a semester, working part-time, and I was just a loser. I wasn't a bad person. I was just, I mean, I was a sinner, you know, but I, I was a Christian. I wasn't like you know, going off and doing like wild and crazy stupid things, but I just didn't have any purpose. I just was sort of floating through life. I was living at home, just, I, it was just, there was, no, there was no direction. And my dad, knowing me and loving me, took me aside one day. And he said, Danny, you have no passion for anything. Your life, you just, you're just sort of floating through life. You need to get some passion about something. I mean, he was a Christian, but he didn't even, he didn't even make it spiritual. He's just like, I just want you to care about something. He took me aside and he said, you, you, need, you need something that you're fighting for and living for in your life. Well, I was... A Christian, I had the Holy Spirit inside of me, and the Holy Spirit used those words from my dad, and he lit a fire inside of me. And I knew that the only thing worth getting that excited about 
was the purposes of God in this world. And so my life from that moment, it's been almost 20 years, has changed forever. And I, I had a renewed purpose in my education. I had a renewed purpose in my work, in my part-time little crummy jobs I was working and finishing up at a secular public university and an English major, but I knew I was going to go to seminary and I was started being intentional and serving in ministry. And God had used that one conversation to change the trajectory of my life forever. All because my dad came alongside of me and said, Danny, it's time. It's time to build. Let's pray. Lord, would you just spark a fire in us like you did amongst the remnant of the people in the day of Haggai? Over these next few weeks, would you help us to see that we don't have to be angry, we don't have to be afraid, that we don't need to give up or give in, but that it's time to build. It's time to pursue you with all of our heart, to lean into community and to follow you in the mission that you have for us in the world. And as an infant church, Lord, it's time for us to build. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>